You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Paul Kicks, who is a deputy editor at ESPN the magazine. His work has appeared in the New Yorker, GQ, New York, Men's Journal, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. And he's the author of the book, The Saboteur, The Aristocrat Who Became France's Most Daring Anti-Nazi Commando. He's in New York, and he's got a day job, so we are recording this via phone. So, Paul, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. I'm happy to do it. So you found one of the perfect situations for a writer, an incredibly interesting subject of whom almost nothing, at least in English, has been written. So how did you come across this topic? Yeah, it was sort of virgin territory. Um, I was reading, uh, it was 2012, and I was reading an obituary in the New York Times, and uh, it, it was, I read his, it was Robert's obituary, and I was just like, man, this guy's life was incredible. Uh, and it was actually so good that I have a file at home called Book Ideas. Uh, and I, I kept, I threw this obituary in that file, and then I promptly did absolutely nothing with it, uh, because um, I just started this job I have now at ESPN Magazine, and um, and I didn't speak French. That was the, that was the really big drawback, right? Uh, but it kept nagging at me, and so eventually I got to the point where I was just like, I have to do this. I have to do this. So uh, by the fall of 2012, I reached out uh, to his family and asked if they would cooperate, and they said they would. And I found the, uh, the the story of Robert's memoir, which, as you said, it was it was never translated. Um, and then, you know, set about doing the work. And I, I spent four years in in five different countries researching this thing. Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, any time I have an author writing about intelligence, which is a, a level of difficulty that goes a little beyond some of the other topics because of the paucity of sources, because how difficult it is to find out information for some of these things. You already mentioned the family a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about how you put this book together? What kind of source material you used to create such an interesting narrative? Yeah, there's actually, 
that's absolutely true. And there was another layer of complication of this, which is if you were a part of the resistance during the war, the last thing you would ever do is leave a paper trail in country at all. You know, certain agents in, in other parts of the country would at least be able to report back or there would be some sort of paper trail or something like that. There was nothing um, uh, like that for resistance fighters in France. Um, the second complication was that uh, Robert uh, said that he worked with a British operation called Special Operations Executive. Well, there was a fire in the late 1940s that destroyed uh, what the official historian of SOE would later call seven-eighths of the source material uh, found within SOE's archives. So I had those two things to try to wade through. So how did I do it? So number one, I relied on a few things that he said. Number one was the memoir. Number two was an audio recording where he recounted for his children after he received the highest um, level of commendation in France, the Legion of Honor. After he received that, his kids wanted to know, his adult children wanted to know, well, wait, you never told us what exactly you did during the war. So he worked with a journalist in Paris and put, put together the CD, which was three-plus hours of material. Lastly, there was a DVD from the family that recounted what the occupation itself was like. So from that material, I was able to sort of get a sense for the episodes, but that didn't help me in any way confirming these episodes or, can, or you know, making sure that the chronology of events were right. So, that's for, so first for the chronology of events, I turned to Robert's military records. And here's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, if I can geek out here for a minute about source materials. Geek out, geek out all you yeah, want. Yeah. <laughs> so what I said a minute ago about, you know, if you, if you leave a paper trail behind you, the Germans would have found you during the war if you're a resistance fighter, right? So what happened after the war, the government wanted to find a way to create a database, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, of course, pre-computer and all the rest. But basically to try to vet all of these people who said they were part of the resistance. So this oral tradition was put down on paper. It was a matter of certain guys saying, this is what I did. This is where I did it. Um, this is when I did it. And here are three other people that you could talk to that could verify that, right? So, um, so then the government would go to those other three people and say, okay, well, can you tell us what you did? Yes, this is what I did. And yes, I worked with that guy. And so, and you know, over time, this really, frankly, somewhat rich tradition of, of source material builds up around resistance cells and what they did. Um, so a lot of Robert's military records from that period is him saying, I did this, I did that, here's, here's when I did it. Um, and here's who you can talk with, uh, or here are the resistance cells that I worked with. So that was great, right, because now I have a base level of understanding. Um, what I then did was went to the resistance networks themselves, which oftentimes kept either during the war, secretly, or after the war, a record of everything that happened. These would often be very terse reports, right? Like there's this great episode in the book where Robert is asked to infiltrate a uh, Nazi-run uh, munitions factory, and um, he said in every point of reference that he sabotaged this thing, but I couldn't initially find anything for it. Ultimately, though, looking through a couple of what I thought were random British files, I found uh, a verification that that was uh, sabotaged during the summer of 1944 and by an organization 
uh, for whom Robert would have worked. So that's all that it said, right? That's all that it said at the, at the group resistance level. Just this sabotage happened, here's when, um, and here's what, here's what the damage was, right? But because I knew, again, that sort of base history, all those episodes, because I knew what he was saying then, and because those episodes were themselves reflected in Robert's military records, which was itself vetted by the government, now I started to get an understanding for, okay, this seems to all make sense. And to make this rather long anecdote somewhat shorter, um, in the end I was able to independently verify uh, every major episode of Robert's war. Sometimes it took work like having to find uh, people in Spain. Sometimes it meant having to find, again, um, uh, files that I thought wouldn't necessarily be helpful in, uh, in London. A lot of times it was just asking the French government for more and more and more files. I mean, it was, that, work was, that work was the main work of the book, honestly. Um, uh, going back to the Ministry of Defense week after month after year, just keep asking for more documents until I was able to get a great grasp of, of who this guy was. Well, you mentioned the idea of, of people having a difficulty verifying who was actually in the resistance. It really reminds me of uh, the, the kind of the JFK syndrome where uh, I guess it was a decade or so after JFK was assassinated, they asked people, like, did you vote for Kennedy? And if they took the reactions from the people they asked, he would have won by, like, a massive landslide over actually him winning uh, against Richard Nixon in 1960. It's that like a lot of people came later on and said, oh, yeah, I voted for Kennedy. Uh, yeah. when, and so a lot of people, it's impossible to say, yeah, I worked for the resistance or I didn't, because in many cases there is no paper trail. There is no document evidence. It may be that you worked the resistance with people who had been killed and you're the only one still living of your little resistance cell, and there's no one there to verify whether you actually work for them or not. And, of course, after the war... If you did collaborate with the Nazis, it was in your best interest to say that you'd work with the resistance. Yes, but here's where it gets kind of interesting, because a lot of times the people who worked for the resistance would only be known by code names. And so if, if the code names ended up matching up, um, then suddenly the, the people would be onto something, right? So the people tracking it would be onto something. Um, Suffice to say that in, I believe it was 1947, there was a, uh, the French government began to issue these medals called Medal in French, or excuse me, in English, it's just simply called Medal of the, of the Resistance. Um, and, uh, and you could have only earned that medal through actual sabotages that other, witnessed, other people witnessed. Or, um, actually, you know what, that is, the, that is the one criteria. I was thinking of another medal. Uh, Robert was among the first class of uh, first classes of people to uh, receive that medal, and I've, I've got the files for that. So once I had that, and once I had other things as well, like for instance, he says, "I got to be honest." When I started this, I thought his his accounts were so unbelievable, right? I, I mean, like I began to think about that literally. I'm like, you know, there's I've been a journalist for 15 years. I'm like, I'm thinking skeptically. I bet he's cooking some of this, and one of one of the one of the major points was he said he escaped his own execution, and I was like, what? <laughs> so I went and found um, the prison rolls in uh, Auxerre, which is in north central France, and he was held there. He said in, in late 1943, and sure enough, I found uh, De La Rochefoucauld uh, held there in 1943, and I keep flipping through the rolls, and I'm doing this work with a local historian who turned out to be phenomenal because he knew that department's history of the resistance incredibly well. And he's like, I always wondered what the backstory was of this 
De La Rochefoucauld guy. And I said, well, why is that? And so we kept flipping through some more of the roles, and he goes, this is why. And he points to March 20th, 1944, where it says, Avad, or in English, he escaped. <laughs> and I'm like, so he did do it. He's like, I know. Uh, so, um, uh, so we, you know, it was that, like I said, there wasn't any one big composite file where you could verify everything. But the work of working across all these different, across all these different archives, across all these different countries, I got to the point where I felt very comfortable putting down on the page what I put on the page. Let's talk a little bit about the background of Robert de la Rochefoucauld, and I'm really proud of myself for pronouncing that correctly. You did uh, a great job. Because this is not just some kind of random kid who decided to fight the Nazis. This is a we don't see this a lot in the United States, but you know, I guess the level of the Rockefellers or the Kennedys or the yeah. Carnegies. This is an aristocratic family that goes back centuries inside France. Centuries. I mean, it's it's literally. I mean, they their history runs through 1,000 years of French history. Uh, the, my favorite anecdote is uh, Louis the Sixteenth is looking down on the Garden of Versailles at 1789, and he sees uh, the pitchforks approaching, and he turns to an aide and he goes, uh, "Is this a revolt?" And the aide says, "No, sire, this is the revolution," uh, and it was. <laughs> um, and uh, and that aide was Robert's like great 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 grandfather. So this family was firmly aligned with. The monarchy. This family descended from dukes. Um, this family, like what you mentioned a minute ago, you know, if the Kennedys would have had some sort of power in America for 1,000 years, they perhaps would have equaled the power that uh, the La Rochefoucauds have enjoyed for about 1,000 years. I mean, some of the, the ancestors were, were beatified by the, the Vatican, their saints and others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the street in Paris named after his family. I mean, this is somebody who uh, grew up with maybe not even a silver spoon might be too cheap. This is somebody who grew up with an extraordinary amount of wealth inside France, someone that probably could have rode out the war uh, in relative comfort uh, and not not actually chosen to risk his life as much as he did. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, that, that was that's really important because that became – one of the animating questions for me as I was working my way through this research, why did he do this? And uh, I won't give away everything, but I'll sort of allude to a couple of things. Number one, um, his father, who was himself a, a, a very brave officer during World War I and had been, and had been uh, recommissioned uh, at the outbreak of World War II as about a 50-year-old, his father was held um, in a, uh, a German-run POW camp um, at the start of the war. And Robert didn't have any real contact from them. Uh, and there was contact, but it was censored. Um, and so you, you didn't really get a sense of what was actually going on there. Uh, and what was going on there was terrible. It was, it was known as Little Siberia. It was, it was in this very remote part of Austria. It was incredibly cold. And, um, uh, so that's one facet. The other, and this goes back to what we were just discussing, it's hard for an American to understand this, I think, um, except for those who have Whose, whose names are synonymous with American history. But, you know, there was a part of Robert that thought, that thought, I need to do this. I want to do this. He was an adventurous guy anyway, but I need to do this because he wanted to write his own chapter of the family history. He saw the country that his forebears had literally created or helped create. He saw that being, you know, perhaps permanently altered and or destroyed 
by the Germans, and he wanted to do his part. Um, and that's ultimately why he decided to join the resistance. Let me let me let me ask you a little about the. Re- I was going to bring up the. You know what? I will. One of the great anecdotes about his upbringing to give you an idea of how aristocratic this person is. This is a guy who actually met Hitler when he was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I I just started laughing when I read kind of. You you always say. You know, what if you had met Hitler when he was younger? You know, had a chance to kill him before he became a bad guy. This this kid literally went. You know, Hitler patted him on the head and said, "Such a cute little Frenchman when he was a kid." Yeah, and he did that because of that. Thank you for bringing it up. So yeah, he he goes to only the most elite boarding schools in uh, Europe, and I think when he's probably fifteen or sixteen, uh, it's either nineteen thirty-seven or nineteen thirty-eight. Uh, he is he is. He is in Austria, and uh, he and this Jesuit, excuse me, uh, Marist priest, uh, ends up leading the boys up to this hill, and it's in Hitler's Alpine retreat. Uh, my friend, excuse me, my German is really bad, uh, but it's Berchtesgaden, right? Um, uh, and 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 they see as they're taking in this massive compound, these line of Mercedes wend their way down the long drive. And the boys are sort of taken aback. A lot of them are Austrian, but, but Robert says that there were a couple of Frenchmen there as well. And um, the, the priest has them sort of stand off to the side. But then the line of, of cars stops, and Hitler himself gets out, and he goes down and starts introducing himself. And, and the thing that I, you know, what's, what's, so what's interesting is Robert didn't speak great German, but he thought that he should speak it in front of Hitler. And uh, as you were alluding to just a minute ago, Hitler sort of saw through the heard through the uh, the the accent right away and said Franzosen, which means Frenchman or French one, and uh, and patted him on the head and then went on his way. So here's what's interesting because you said a minute ago, like what about what would you have done if you would have known who he was? Robert was never a really studious kid, but one of the things um, he understood because of his own perch in life, he understood power. and he saw throughout his childhood the, the extent to which people in salons that would be hosted at his house would talk about him. And he saw as well that day the reverence with which the Austrian boys and the priest himself uh, held Hitler. Um, so he admitted, which I found really telling, he admitted that he was kind of awestruck and even a little bit giddy that day to have met him. And it took a couple more years. It took him reaching adulthood. It took him starting to pay attention to more newspapers, in particular to the BBC. Um, uh, And it took, of course, the imprisonment of his father for his views to drastically alter. But in that moment, as a a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid, again, he thought that it was kind of cool, I guess, for lack of a better word, to 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 have gotten a chance to meet him. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the resistance, because I think there's a misunderstanding uh, even among people who know this a little bit, that, that the resistance was immediate. And the minute the, the Germans showed up and occupied France, that there were people executing Nazi officers and blowing up b- buildings and bridges. And, and, and you mentioned in the book, and even in, in uh, Rochefoucauld talks about the fact that in 1940, it was actually hard to find resistors to join up with yeah. in the beginning. The army had been disbanded. All the weapons had been you know given in or taken by the Germans. And basically, it's just a bunch of you know, underground newspapers writing bad stuff about the German occupiers. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It would take until probably, you know, the, the first real, 
the first real active resistors, meaning those who took up arms, would have been the uh, French communists. And you didn't start to see that movement until 1941 into 1942. In 1940, um, there wasn't really a whole lot of, of anything. It was people trying to figure out what side the other side was really on. Um, and I'll give you a, a great example. There was this, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote an amazing collection of essays from that period, trying to like record in the moment what it's like. And he said, um, it's very hard to distinguish the enemy when that enemy is not on the other line of fire. And so the, the Germans among whom Parisians lived, uh, and Robert traveled back and forth, he had, was attending college by then in Paris, or he would go back to this, the family estate uh, north of Paris. But uh, the people who encountered the Germans, at least initially, um, did not take up arms against them. They're, they perhaps were rude to them, but that was about it. I mean, it, Sartre talks a little bit about the same thing Robert does, which is that the Germans became this sort of passe part of the scenery of everyday life. And perhaps the only thing to know that the country was occupied, at least initially, were the swastika flags that were suddenly everywhere, you know, whipping in the wind on the top of the Eiffel Tower. And it almost seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm reading this wrong, but that Rochefoucauld was just a complainer at first. I mean, he and the other kind of teenage kids got together and kind of whined about the Nazis being in power, but he was almost forced, forced is a wrong word, kind of, he was forced to, to make a decision when he was denounced. And, you know, people denouncing one another as being uh, uh, resi- part of the resistance. Uh, and that kind of made him make a decision about whether or not he was going to actually go off and fight versus just kind of continuing to whine about the German occupation. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a French uh, uh, sociologist and psychologist whose name escapes me at the moment, but he, he argues that a lot of teenagers have a messianic uh, complex, right? And they think that they can change the world. And Robert and his friends would gather and they would say, you know, this is ridiculous. I can't believe the way that, you know, the, the adults are acting. Um, we will fight. We will fight. And... Uh, it, it took, they were sort of talking each other up, right? Because again, in the beginning, there was where, you know, and with what arms, you know, the, the Germans had confiscated everything all the way down to hunting knives. So, um, so it was just a sort of a lot of uh, arrogant, late adolescent boy talk, right? Uh, but um, that sort of, they, this collection of his friends, they sort of began to egg each other on and egg each other on and egg each other on until Robert and a, and a cousin of his tried to actually uh, sabotage a train. And um, and then a, 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 a man of the older generations, probably World War One, stopped them from doing that and said, look, you're going to endanger not only your own lives, but lots of lives of people around you just simply for doing that. Well, to go back to what you were mentioning a minute ago, um, those, that sort of talk, those sort of uh, uh, actions, or you know, qua- near near actions, I should say, that ends up getting its way to the attention of um, the uh, Gestapo in country, and uh, Robert was denounced by one of his own countrymen, and uh, it was at that point. Uh, this is very, if I could just share this, it's kind of interesting. There was a postman who. Uh, worked for the resistance insofar as if he saw a denunciatory letter addressed to the SD, um, which is the more the, 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 the official acronym for the Gestapo, um, if he saw a letter addressed to them, he would uh, steam it open, see who was the person denounced, 
and then burn it. Go to that person's house and warn him or her that, you know, there had been a denunciatory letter. Letter. So Robert got a warning that he had been denounced. For what? He's not exactly sure. Um, uh, it just said that he was acting like a terrorist. It may have been the aborted uh, mission to sabotage a train. It may have been just, frankly, his talk. I'm, we're not exactly sure. But in any case, he, that was that was the instigator, right? That was the moment where he said, all right, well, I've got to make this official now. I've been talking about this enough. I'm going to actually do it now. And so he began to find a way to get out of country and to begin to, to uh, at first he wanted to go to De Gaulle in London and join De Gaulle's Free French Forces. That was his initial plan, but other things intervened. Right, yeah. He, uh, we'll, we'll skip some of the narrative so people can actually read it and, and read it for themselves. But No, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, we'll say that he was spotted by a talent scout uh, for a new British organization that you've already mentioned, the SOE, uh, which at the time really needed Frenchmen. They were, they were not in a position where you would think there'd be Frenchmen all over the place. Uh, but the SOE at this point was was low on people they could send back in to get away uh, with pretending to be French. Uh, it was very, you know, no matter how good your foreign language is, you may all have a little bit of an accent. So the perfect thing is having somebody who actually is French uh, to send back in. And so, you know, Rochefoucauld was almost the perfect person for this operation. Yeah, he was, uh, beyond a doubt, because he was, he was young, um, he had motivation, uh, again, because of the things I discussed, his father, the, his own family history, and uh, he, of course, spoke perfect and fluent French. So uh, he he was persuaded uh, to not join the Gauls for French forces. Well, and he, but he actually agreed to do this if de Gaulle gave him blessing. It's doubtful most 17 or 18-year-olds would have gotten face-to-face -face with de Gaulle at this point. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, he did meet with um, resistance leaders, right, uh, captains or, or the generals within the movement, whatever the case may be. Um, but, yeah, to get to meet somebody who hadn't yet even joined the resistance. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he gets this meeting, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I'll just say this. It was a lot of fun for me to look at shifting relationship over the course of the war between Churchill and de Gaulle um, and how they both sort of loved and loathed each other. And what Robert said to him, uh, to Robert, excuse me, what, what de Gaulle said to Robert, even if it's allied with the devil, it's still for France to go, um, that allies with the devil part. It reflects a lot about how much he needed the Brits, how much he despised that he needed the Brits, um, and uh, and just again the, the, the shifting nature of of his relationship with the Allied forces throughout the course of the war. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler 
the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Once he decides to join the SOE, I think he did a really good job in, in laying out kind of the training regimen uh, and kind of the, the very specific uh, demolitions training and hand-to-hand training they went through. And I think a lot of our listeners will have a little bit of this understanding, a little of this background, but I think you do a good job in talking about really the kind of surgical necessity of some of the demolitions work. And the, the misperception is let's blow up a bridge or let's blow up a factory, but the, the SOE really focused on making – your your operation count, you know, and, and being much more strategic about how you do sabotage. Yeah, and there was a guy named Reem uh, who I quote at length, or at least paraphrase at length, I should say, uh, because when reading through his material, he was maybe even more verbose than I am right now. Uh, and and but Reem, he was this genius. He was called the Don of Industrial Sabotage, and it was exactly that, you know. Um, it's far better for a resistant to learn uh, the intricacies of a plant, to understand its engineering, and to sabotage only the key parts. That's, that, that can be even more uh, effective than blowing up the whole of a, of, a, of a factory or whatever the case may be. Um, same applies for telephone lines. Uh, he, he pushed ingenuity wherever he could. He wanted – there was this great anecdote where uh, some – uh, resistance, some resistance in North France, in the north of France, had put explosives that looked a lot like coal in a Nazi-run coal-powered uh, factory. And they put it in, and then it blew up. And it was sort of, you know, dangerous. I think, actually, it wasn't without civilian loss. But... The reason that Reem loved it, and he told uh, successive classes of SOE to, to sort of think along these lines, was because the workers themselves refused to show up thereafter uh, because they didn't want to be the next one. Now, there, there was also no way to see what was actually coal and what wasn't, because as soon as it was fed into the furnace, it would either blow up or it would just sort of, you know, burn as energy. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was those sort of tactics. Uh, that that Robert learned, among many many others. I mean, uh, you're, some of the some of the listeners may be familiar with um, uh, Fairbairn and Sykes. Uh, and those guys, <laughs> my God, those guys. See, I didn't ha- I didn't know a whole lot about what exactly the Brits did during the war as I started out on this research. But to read the books of Fairbairn and Sykes, uh, to read Defendu, to read the things that they would they they had. You know, page by page illustrations of what these maneuvers looked like, and you know these were called silent killing, and, and you know it, it was even Fairbairn and Sykes said this is inspired by jujitsu, but unlike jujitsu, it it recognizes no rules, and it is the most barbaric thing that we would ever want to wish upon anyone, right? So uh, these maneuvers um, 
uh, were very effective. Let's just put it that way. Right. Yeah, no, and anyone who's been through the museum will uh, not only see explosive coal, but also uh, the knife that was created uh, yeah. by Fairbairn and Sykes. So, yeah, this is something that, like I said, I, I was pleased to see how well uh, you laid out the kind of training uh, that um, not only Rochefoucauld, but other SOE uh, trainees had to go through. I think that you did a really good job with that. Uh, always good to see. I, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it, you know, as part of the recording, because the listeners know this, is, is there's always a hesitancy when we get a book from someone who is not, has no intelligence background. And there's kind of this weird, uh, anytime we get a book from someone who does have an intelligence background, I expect to not enjoy the actual writing because there's, it's, 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 it's nice to find the happy medium of somebody who can write and has done enough research to understand the background behind this. And, and so it, it was nice to see, um, how well you lay this out, and I think you do a very good job of that. Thank you, thank you. I mean, one thing I'll, I'll say is just as an addendum to this, you know, that's actually part of the reason uh, my, my publisher at one point asked, why are you including this many notes? I ended up having over 70 pages worth of notes for this book, and part of it was just to lay out for the reader where I'm getting this stuff from. Um, I just wanted them to be aware that you know, I'm trying my best to work with as many primary documents uh, as possible here. Uh, uh, so yes, I, I greatly appreciate that because it was it was truly I wanted to tell a great story and I wanted it to be as accurate as possible. Um, uh, and, and and again, the big thing was I want to tell a true story and be comfortable with what I'm putting on the page. And in the end, I, I felt that both of those things I was able to carry out. No, and absolutely, not. and I think that I'm the last person you want to watch a spy movie with or a TV show because <laughs> I, it's like doctors watching ER or lawyers watching Law and I'm just saying like that's not true. That's not true. God, that's annoying. And, and I didn't do that, for this, which, which is great. I, I'm, I enjoy not taking apart books written by uh, people outside the field because, you know, when you do see one that's written well, which obviously this is, you are a professional writer, and it clearly comes through in this, but someone also who has done the research and seems to understand the field uh, makes us very happy. So, again, I congratulate you on that. Um, let's talk a little bit about joining the resistance because it's not necessarily as um, – as many people would think, because more popular culture or even you know some historical beliefs have been that the French resistance was this massive group that was half of France and the population rising up. This is a really, really small number of yeah. people who actually actively resisted. And for anyone joining, especially somebody being sent over uh, as part of the SOE, the life expectancy was not very long. No, 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 no. I mean, we can start there. Uh, SOE handlers said that the agents in country could expect to be there six months before the odds start to work against them. Uh, and every SOE agent was outfitted with a cyanide pill um, that they could pop in their mouths whenever the torture of interrogation became too much. Those are the final two lessons of SOE. So you learn all about how to basically kill anyone with your bare hands. And then there's this final lesson in humility. Uh, because there were many great agents who had to swallow the cyanide pill. There were many great agents who, who, whose, who, whose odds worked against them uh, after six months. Um, so yes, it's a, and to go back to your, to your earlier point, you know, de Gaulle, after the war, perpetuated this myth for decades that nearly all of France resisted. Well, the reality is, according to various scholars who spent a lot of time studying this, uh, that perhaps as few as 2% of the French populace actively resisted, meaning took up arms, uh, meaning sabotaged, uh, perhaps an, a 
additional 8 to 10 percent were passive resistors, um, giving information to those who were active, or at a minimum trying their best to confuse the Germans uh, or slow their progress as it pertains to winning the war. On the flip side, you had perhaps as much as 20 percent of the French populace actively working with the Germans. And then in the middle is that great middle, and it is, it is at best apathetic, uh, it is at worst um, switching sides as the course of the war goes on. And the Germans did an exceptionally good job in discouraging resistance. I mean, major repercussions, you know, for one resistor, they would line up dozens and dozens of people yeah. uh, and kill them, even if they had nothing to do with the resistance. They're very good at infiltrating cells. Right. And there's page after page after page in this book of just their infiltrating one cell after the next after the next and turning people. And that has a lot to do with the collaborators who'd work with them who are just yep. potentially just as bad as the Germans in many respects. These are people that are turning in their own countrymen and yep. turning against them. And so that six-month life expectancy made sense uh, because the likelihood of you sticking around and going on without somebody infiltrating your cell you know, or diming you out to the Germans was very low. Very low. And there, there was a, there was this there were some amazing things I found in the course of reporting this. One of them was that Radio Paris, the official uh, Vichy broadcaster, had a show called uh, uh, Repetite, uh, which translates to repeated. And uh, that show was nothing but Frenchmen denouncing their own uh, countrymen, sometimes their own business associates, sometimes their own family members. This was broadcast, uh, well, I don't know actually the, 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 the frequency with which it was broadcast, but I know it was either daily or weekly. Um, uh, that's, that's just to give you a taste of what it's like for people who are not even a part of the Nazi operation. And then you start to deal with those who were actively working, who had either been tortured and flipped, who had flipped of their own accord, um, or just frankly, like I've spent a, a little bit of time talking about uh, a guy in the book uh, that, that helped lead to Robert's first imprisonment named uh, Kurt Merck, a.k.a. Captain Kaiser, uh, and he was incredibly good at his job, incredibly good. And later, there's a and later in the book, there's a there's almost a, to me a perfect villain, uh, and I mean that only in the sense of narrative storytelling because he was an awful human being. Um, but there was a there was a gentleman by the name of Friedrich Wilhelm Dosa, um, and I mean the way that he ran counterintelligence uh, in Bordeaux was breathtaking. Yeah, I want to get to him in a second because I want to talk about Bordeaux because, uh, because in, a, in a later operation, he gets sent in to Bordeaux to sabotage a munitions factory, among other things. And Bordeaux itself was particularly problematic for the resistance because not only did you have Nazi repression taken to the limits that you might never see, is that SD agents, as you mentioned, Gestapo agents had been there since the very beginning. Yeah. of the operation because there's a massive submarine base there. And so they knew the area. They knew everything. They, they kind of had settled in. Yeah, they had, and it, they'd been there since 1940. They'd had an opportunity to understand the local populace as well as the local populace understood them. Um, and then you, you add on to that the sophistication of someone like Dosa, whose father was a, was a French professor in Hamburg. Oh I, I don't have the book in front of me, but I think it's Hamburg. Um, and who understood the language perfectly, who understood the culture perfectly, and who had this bright, shining arrogance about him, um, and thought he was the intellectual better of every SD agent in Bordeaux, and it just so happens that he probably was. Uh, <laughs> um, 
and for what it's worth, I mean, uh, he was an incredibly complex man, and I, I dealt. I wanted to really have the reader understand him. I, I give uh, almost a full chapter to uh, to, to Dosa, and um, one of the things that I actually found compelling, aside from the horrors that he would inflict upon resistance fighters, is that he would have been, if he were in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan today, uh, he proposed ideas that would have been seen as very effective counterinsurgency measures. For instance, he said that uh, the best way to try to persuade the populace uh, is to understand the populace and not to terrorize them. Uh, and he proposed that the fighters that he imprisoned uh, be treated like men and, um, and if need be, even returned uh, without too much information. He wanted to basically, it was a hearts and minds sort of thing that he was proposing. That, of course, got nowhere in Hitler's Europe, uh, so, um, so he, re he returned to his more brutal tactics. And they were, br they were as brutal as, uh, as they were clever. And let me ask you a little bit more about him. I'm going to set this up without giving away the narrative because it's such a good story. Um, but uh, Rochefoucauld gets captured uh, for one of the multiple times he gets captured in the book. <laughs> And he's going to be interrogated. You could almost argue that perhaps he wasn't so good at his job. I, was gonna, gonna, I wasn't going to say that, but I was thinking, like, man, he's in he's in country like twenty minutes, and then all of a sudden he gets captured. But we'll we'll let the reader figure that out on their own. But um, he is he is captured. He's sent to a, a fort that he is going to be interrogated by Dosa after the weekend, right? So he's yep. he's captured. It's the weekend. He's basically going to get locked up until Dosa shows up on Monday. The narrative is wonderful. I won't spoil it, but he finds a way to escape before uh, for Dosa shows up. One thing you had a ton on him, but did you, was there anything anywhere that talks about documents, evidence about how Dosa reacted to his escape? Now, you have a lot about that they looked for him and it got really difficult to get out and actually cost him a disguise that he had to use to try to escape the area, but not a lot on Dosa's reaction to his escape. Yeah, and... Um... There was a there was a sort of storytelling reason for that, which is I wanted the camera to return to Robert, um, and I wanted it to to just deal with uh, you would just sort of understand in passing uh, that they were looking for him. But they, there were there were a couple of other things happening uh, to to answer your question directly. Um, number one, it's July of 1944, so it's D Day plus 30. They're busy. They're very busy, and to the extent that they're looking for one inmate who's escaped from Fort Duha. Uh, they have they have many other concerns, uh, so that's one thing. And the the other thing is, and this was a little bit frustrating, um, not all that surprising because uh, I ran into this a few different times. But there were a lot of German files that the Germans destroyed um, after the war. There were, or excuse me, during the war, like as the, as the Germans were leaving, as 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 Dosa were leaving, there were a lot of French scholars with whom I spoke that felt that Dosa very likely torched a lot of what he had been documenting. Uh, as he left town. So um, if he, you know, maybe there would have been something on Robert there, uh, but I, did, I wasn't able to find anything from the records of Fort Duha that would have indicated how he would have responded. Interesting story. Just one of those things where you're like, I, I want to know more about this guy. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder how he, I, and I guess they, they, you know, at that point, Rochefoucauld wasn't known to be who he was. So again, he was just kind of a random escapee yeah. uh, that was going to get out. Uh, let me shift gears a little bit. And you've already, hinted at these ideas, but some of the infighting 
between the resistance movements I thought was very interesting uh, that you, you were able to get across uh, in this book, not just between the movements themselves, uh, but also between resistance movements and de Gaulle and how much de Gaulle looked to minimize the impact of the resistance movements. Because Eisenhower, and you mentioned this, and people may have heard this statistic before, but Eisenhower essentially said that the, uh, the ability of the resistance to do what they did right before and during the D-Day invasions may have added something close to about 15 divisions worth of, of combat power as a force multiplier during the invasion. And it's interesting to see how much de Gaulle minimizes the impact of the resistance, uh, especially the, the, the – his name is escaping me, but the last name starts with an L, and he, Landis perhaps, uh, major resistance leader that de Gaulle says, you, you have to leave the – you have two days or something to get out of my face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the big uh, – his codename was, uh, was, was Aristotle, and that was his – he was the major operative in Bordeaux. Um, and so a lot – so what's happening there is politics, really. Uh, you know, you, you've got these guys who've been in country fighting in the underground, obtaining real power. Uh, militarily as well as political, politically, uh, by you know, by the summer of 1944, as we go into the fall of 1944, and they're operating these municipalities like, as Scott one scholar said, like quote feudal lords, and then as France, as French cities are liberated, Paris is liberated in August of, of 44, and then after that, De Gaulle tries to really clamp down on the resistance because he sees he now has a real political foe in all of these very legitimate heroes who have been there fighting um, while he has, has literally been in London. Um, now, that is not to diminish entirely what the Free French Forces did, because as 43 becomes 44, they begin to play more active roles in various Allied uh, operations throughout the world. But in country, in France, uh, absolutely, there's a ton of infighting, and there's a ton of sort of of trying to mark off territory, uh, and in the end, because de Gaulle had the most supreme power, he squashes the resistance entirely. And I think what's interesting for me as it pertains to Robert, Robert in the fall of 1944 decides to join an officer school within, within the French army. And he is learning skills there that he has already learned and executed on over the last two and a half years. And he's sitting there thinking, what am I doing? You know, and, and, these, and, and by the way, some of these French army officers are sneering at him, you know, saying, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, well, I've been doing it. You know, it, was, it was very interesting to see that back and forth uh, play out. Uh, the resistance leaders had a, had a phrase for um, the army leaders that was basically like their, shirt, their, their, their outfits, you can still see the moths on them, right? Uh, and, and the army officers in turn would do their best to diminish uh, the resistance fighters uh, because de Gaulle was in power again by the fall of 44 and you had to follow his way. So he joins an officer's school, but then he quickly leaves it because there were thankfully enough um, bright officers to see that, well, there's actually, he could serve as, a, as an operative basically, but within the French army. And let me, if you'll permit me to talk a little bit more about the narrative of that final mission, I think it's real, there's some interesting dynamics going on on that last mission. The, really, the setup is that although Allied forces are pushing almost out of France at this point into you know, Belgium and the, the Low Countries and into Germany, 
there's still a major pocket of German forces in southwest France yep. covering the subpens that are still being used, as many submarines that are left, uh, to, to harass shipping coming across the Atlantic. And um, talk a little bit about that, because I think the, the decision about whether just to let them go, you know, let go ahead, let's win the war, and then kind of walk in there and be like, hey, guys, the war's over, you know, give up, or to actually attack them. Because the, the decision to actually attack them probably led to the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of French civilians. Yes, absolutely. So you've got about 9,000 German officers stationed uh, just to the west of Bordeaux in the, Garand, in the uh, Grand Estuary. Uh, and, and the French want a French victory on French soil. Uh, and so that is sort of the, the, the impetus for this 1945 attack where napalm was used for one of the first times uh, in World War II. And it is incredibly destructive. Uh, of course, it doesn't destroy everything. All of these, all of these squat German compounds with these heavy artillery guns are some of them are still sitting there. And so that's part of Robert's final mission. But to address your larger point, it goes back to the politics. Uh, there was such a thirst for claiming some sort of victory, even a moral victory. Um, that uh, they decided to go ahead with this mission, whereas there were there were there were admirals, there were generals who themselves were questioning the validity of carrying this out because now it's April 45. I mean Hitler is in his bunker. You have the you have the Americans and British coming from uh, they're closing in on Berlin uh, from the east, and then you've got the Russians closing in from the west. I mean this is it's almost over if they simply would have waited. But they didn't wait, and they dropped a lot of napalm on a couple of different dates. And uh, after the war, there was talk as to whether or not the final mission in which Robert took part, this massive operation, uh, if it were in fact, if it were in fact some sort of war crime that, that happened there. And there were many people, there were many lo- local people who thought that it was in fact a war crime. Well, and Robert's final mission works out wonderfully as far as the commando mission is concerned. But I. It is counterfactual history, but I can imagine how much second guessing would have happened if his very daring commando mission had failed, and you know they had all been killed. I mean, they they take out this bunker without losing a man. He doesn't even injure himself, so it's a huge success. But it seemed to be a huge success with absolutely no reason to take upon this operation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and you know, it's it's funny. Robert would remain. According to his military records, he would remain an operative in some capacity until about the 1950s. And there were other episodes after World War II, even stuff that I, I thought it was sort of beyond the scope of what I wanted to write about in the book. Uh, for instance, he goes, uh, he's, he's playing a role in the French Indochina War, largely as a guerrilla fighter uh, to counter the, uh, the guerrilla fighters within Ho Chi Minh's army. Um, and then he's, he's playing roles in other battles throughout you know, sort of more remote fights. Uh, and what I noticed from that period was there was times where even Robert himself is questioning, well, you know, is this necessary? Uh, is, is this something that's worthwhile? Um, and I wonder, you know, of course, I don't, I don't hear about him until I read his obituary. But one of the things I would have liked to have asked him is, even after the war, did you end up leaving uh, the operations world, or the commando world, excuse me, um, because you, did you see that perhaps not all of your missions 
were worthwhile in some sense. Um, there's a hint of that, again, in, in some of his writing, but uh, I would have liked to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a part two to the book uh, that you can... Oh, no. I think I've done... Here's the thing. <laughs> I've, I've, I've loved what I've done, uh, and somebody else last week said, oh, well, here's, here's another resistance fighter, uh, and she was amazing. You know, she lived in London, and, she was, and then she went back to France, and there was a part of me that's like, yeah, I think I'm kind of done. I think, I think I've had enough of, of that for a while. I'm ready to move on to something else. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I get that, yeah. <laughs> After after turning in a book, you, you you like I need a little bit of time, and then I can talk about it. Please don't yeah. tell me to change this anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let me let me finish with this. I, I, this is a opinion question, but you you are certainly the American that knows this guy the best. Let me. What do you think that Robert was given his just due as the hero he was? Certainly in France, he got the highest award. But what about the British? I mean, the British really have him as their operative during this time. Very little is written about him until he dies. Yeah, and, um, and this, is, this is where uh, there are some British scholars and myself who will disagree because there is no, uh, I make a note of this in the notes, there is no uh, SOE record of Robert um, in the SOE archives. And I, there's like seven reasons for why I think he was an operative. Uh, and many of them have to do with uh, French records, which make pretty clear that he was working with the British. Um, uh, but that said, uh, there are some in, in, in London who are like, well, we don't know exactly who this guy is. Uh, to answer your question more directly about the due that was given him, I think even in France, I mean, I there is the, there is a thing with Maurice Papon, uh, and I don't know if, if you and I should discuss that or if we should just leave that for the readers, because that's that even his reputation in France was sullied because of that episode. So. <laughs> Uh, uh, he wrote his memoir in large part in response to uh, what he had done for Maurice Papon uh, at the end of his life. Uh, so it's here's you know here's something else that I, that I'd like to add. Uh, I think from the American perspective, you look at World War II, and the lines are so clear, the valor is so obvious. Um, and so you can't help but celebrate the people who fought and who and who fought admirably. In France, it's way different because you know the occupation was known as the Dark Years, and uh, it's there's a fair amount of shame that even to this day accompanies any conversation about the Dark Years. So Robert, I don't know if he ever really got his due, even leaving aside the Papon thing. I don't know if he would have gotten his due because there were so many resistance fighters who didn't, um, because it's much easier to just forget about that period than to honor those who had acted courageously. Well, the book is called The Saboteur, The Aristocrat Who Became France's Most Daring Anti-Nazi Commando. The author is Paul Kicks. The book is out now. Thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.